Well, thank you, Nigel. Parish a few moments ago said he could go for an hour, and if you'd been sitting close to me, you would have heard me say, keep going, brother, keep going. Um, but over these past weeks, we have noticed how that instead of appointing another military leader like Joshua, God would actually raise up men and women who were called judges to lead the Israelites against local enemies. The very fact that they had to fight these enemies was due to their own disobedience and their own waywardness. You'll recall this particular uh, cycle, if you like, that David drew our attention to. Step one, the Israelites mess up. Then the enemies oppose them. They cry out to God. God raises up a judge. And the land has peace and rest. And that cycle was repeated more than once. You see, in their years of peace and prosperity, the people have become complacent and they'd begun to forget God. They began to wander from his will, to worship pagan gods, and to indulge in compromise and disobedience. Their moral decline was then followed by oppression from the outside. And for 300 years, the people of Israel dipped in and out of being faithful and obedient to God to being disobedient and obnoxious to God. Each cycle seems to have sunk lower than it had previously done before. From chapter 1, we have considered scenes such as the 70 kings with their toes and thumbs cut off, and we've seen the perpetrator of that horrific act getting a dose of his own medicine. We've seen God sending Othniel to save and rescue his people. Forty years later, again after the spiritual decline of God's people, God sends Ehud. He was the left-handed Benjamite who shoves a double-edged 18-inch sword into the belly of the big fat king of Moab. All very blood-curdling stuff. And then after 80 years of peace, we're introduced to Shamgar, the man who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And then after 80 years of peace, we're introduced to, uh, sorry, then last Sunday evening, we were reminded of another decline in the spiritual values of these people. And God had to intervene again. This time he uses people like Deborah, Barak, and the bloodthirsty Jael. That's the lady with a hammer and a tent peg, you'll recall. And they dealt with the ruthless neighbors. But this evening we arrive at chapter 6. Now, picture a scene. You're a Percy Thrower, an Alan Titchmarsh, maybe even a George Johnston. You love your garden and you love gardening. You dig the ground and prepare the soil. You fertilize it. You weed it. You plant the seeds. You water them. You might even talk to them. Lots of toil, lots of tender loving care and lots of hard work. And then suddenly and somewhat unexpectedly, your neighbor jumps over the fence or jumps over the hedge and comes right into your garden and helps himself to all the goodies that you have patiently and carefully prepared and produced. But it doesn't just happen this year. It's been happening for the past seven years, and there's nothing you seem able to do about it. And if you can visualize a scene such as that, then you can maybe have some idea how the Jews felt here in Judges chapter 6. For seven years at the time of harvest, the Midianites, aided and abetted by the Amalekites and other locals, make an annual attack on the crops and animals belonging to the Israelites. They were a huge force in number and in strength. 
So strong, in fact, that if you read in verse 5 and verse 6, you'll find that the situation is graphically described as the land being ravaged and the people being impoverished. These people are destitute, bankrupt, on the breadline. In fact, their situation is so bad that they again find themselves on their knees and crying to God. And again, God sends the help they need. And as you'd expect, God sends them again someone with might and muscle to deal with such a ferocious and innumerable band of invaders. Not so. That's what you and I might expect in such a situation, but in fact, that's not the way it happened. God, in fact, comes to a man called Gideon. And you can be assured Gideon was no conqueror, not by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, Gideon was a coward. Gideon, in our language, would be called a bit of a wimp. At a time when these people needed another Ehud or a Shamgar, fearless and courageous, God comes to Gideon, a man who was fearful and anything but courageous. In fact, in verse 11, we find this man, Gideon, in a secret place, a place of hiding, a place where he was in fear of being found by the Midianites, a place where, because he was so terrorized by him that he threshed wheat in a a wine press. And a wine press was most certainly not the place you would automatically go to thresh wheat. I'm told that even to this day, in the Middle East, you will see them threshing wheat by harvesting it, then remaining outside, taking it to a big slab or a rock where they beat the wheat and throw it in the air so that the chaff is blown away and the wheat is harvested. Now, can you imagine doing that in a wine press? A wine press was an area of carved out stone in which you placed grapes, And the women came and danced around on them to extract the juice from which the wine was made. And no wonder we don't have a taste, many of us, for wine. Gideon was trying to thresh his wheat in a wine press because he was scared for his life. He was frightened to be seen outside with any kind of food or crop. And yet it's to this man that the Lord appears and in verse 12 calls him a mighty warrior, or in my AV days, a mighty man of valor. I remember the story from my earliest Sunday school days. It was almost like a, a comic story, if you like, the hero Gideon, the mighty man of valor. And what's Gideon's response? His response, if you read carefully, is that he gets his Q's and his P's all mixed up. Now, I didn't say P's and Q's, and those of you who know me with the Daniels and the Thonas will probably have thought that I did. But he, he gets his Q's and his P's mixed up. His questions and God's, God's promises. And that's what I want us to look at tonight. Gideon's questions and God's promises. Question one, does God really care about us? It's almost as if Gideon turns to the angel and says, Excuse me, but if the Lord is with us, why has such disaster overtaken us? Where are all his miraculous deeds now that our ancestors told us about? 
They said, didn't the Lord deliver us from Egypt? And now it seems only to abandon us and to allow the Midianites to do all that they please with us. Does he really care about us at all? And yet, as you read the account of what God had been to them and had done for them, the accounts of Exodus and Joshua, here we see that they have the audacity to turn their backs on him, to go their own way, to do their own thing, and then wonder why God was chastening them. Gideon was questioning God's presence with his people. The power of the enemy seemed greater than the God they knew. You see, their Jewish theology would have taught them that God lived among his people. But Gideon's people had begun to look at their circumstances instead of their theology. And when you and I begin to look at our theology through our circumstances, we soon find that our theology is shifting. Gideon needed to be reminded, and so do we, that whatever the circumstances, the Lord is there with him, Gideon, and with us. The truth was that the Lord had not forsaken them. They had forsaken the Lord. And in verses 1 to 6, we read of how God had chastened them. You know, Proverbs 3 verse 11 reminds us, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. The writer later on to the Hebrews uses this quotation in chapter 12 of Hebrews and reminds his readers that God in his discipline is treating them as sons. And as Charles Spurgeon wrote, the Lord does not permit his children to sin successfully. His ultimate purpose is that they might be conformed to his son. Here was Gideon questioning if God really cared about them. Yet time and again, God had shown them his care, his love, his power, and his presence. Does God really care about us? Of course he does. Do you remember the verse in Matthew 10? Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Question one, does God really care about us? Of course he does. Question two, does God know what he's doing? You see, Gideon moves in verses 14 to 24 from questioning God's care to questioning God's wisdom. Have a look at verses 14 to 16. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And Gideon immediately begins to make excuses for himself. And he gives three excuses here in verse 15. First of all, his family was poor. Secondly, his family belonged, he he belonged to the tribe of Manasseh, a tribe not known for its military strength. And by the way, I think he's wrong. 
my recollection was that Dan was the weakest tribe, but he felt that he was the weakest of a weak tribe. And then he says he was the least in his father's house, meaning that he was the youngest son of his family. And when the angel said to Gideon, go in the strength you have, Gideon must have been thinking, what strength? He said, I'm the youngest son from an insignificant family and from a tribe that is known for its lack of strength. In essence, he was saying that he wasn't qualified for this task. Neither was his family, neither was his tribe. And he was basically telling God, listen, you've got it wrong. You've got the wrong guy. But Gideon forgets something. Gideon forgets that God knows our weaknesses before he ever calls us. Therefore, our excuses have absolutely no effect on God. And when Gideon asks the question, how can I? He's not the first person in the Bible to react that way, and he wasn't to be the last. Do you remember Moses in chapter 3 and at verse 11? Moses said, who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Do you remember in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 6, Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I am a child. Notice the emphasis on I. Gideon wondered, how can I? Moses asked, who am I? Jeremiah responded, I cannot speak. And they were right. On their own, they couldn't begin to do the will of God. But what did God say? God gave Moses and Jeremiah a special promise, the same promise that he gave to Gideon in verse 16. I will be with thee. I will be there with you. To Moses, Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, God said, I will be with you. To Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 7, and yet do not say, I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you and to say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you. And this promise to believers is repeated over and over again in God's word to Jacob, to Joseph, to Israel. Do you remember their forefathers in Deuteronomy chapter 31 where the Lord says this, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. On that day I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and difficulties will come upon them, and on that day they will ask, Have not these disasters come upon us, because our God is not with us? Doesn't that sound so like Gideon's complaint and the situation that he found himself in? And God's promise to Gideon comes, Surely I will be with you. He meant, Be courageous, Gideon. For I am with you. And if I am with you, who can be against you? Not the Midianite army. You will smite them as one arm, one man. You can do all things through my strength. I will be with you. So the first question was, does God really care about us? Of course he does. Does God know what he's doing? Of course he does. Third question comes in verses 25 to 32. Will God take care of me? 
despite the fact that God had appeared to him in the form of an angel, or I'm told the theological word is a theophany, Gideon didn't fully receive the assurance that God would be with him. And he asks for a sign to assure him that it really was God who was speaking to him. That it really was God who was promising he would be with Gideon. And God, gracious as ever, agrees to provide that sign. A sign that was requested because of Gideon's unbelief. And so Gideon goes and prepares a sacrifice. A sacrifice that would have been costly given the current scarcity of food. But notice what happens next. As Gideon returns, God has been waiting for him. And as Gideon places his sacrifice on the rock, God consumes the sacrifice by bringing fire from the rock and then immediately disappearing. And if Gideon was afraid before, he was certainly much more frightened by that. Gideon was now convinced. Have a look at verse 22. Gideon was now convinced that he had both seen and spoken with the sovereign God of heaven. And since the Jews believed it was fatal for sinful man to look on God, Gideon was convinced at this very point that he would die. But in verse 23, you'll notice he gets this great assurance from God that he wouldn't in fact die. And that in answer to his question, does God really care for me? There is such an emphatic, yes, Gideon. I do care for you. In fact, I care for you so much more than you could ever imagine. But at verse 25, God comes to Gideon again. Remember, Gideon belonged to a family that worshipped Baal. And if, as God is asking him, he challenges the Midianites in the name of the Lord, it means defying his family, it means defying his neighbors, and it means defying a whole multitude of people who are worshipping Baal. And knowing, knowing that Gideon, as we do now, can you imagine the fear and trembling he must have been experiencing at that very moment? Knowing that Gideon was still afraid, God sets him a task to assure Gideon that God would in fact take care of him. And this was a task that was anything but easy. God says to Gideon to go and destroy the altar dedicated to Baal, to build an altar to the Lord and to sacrifice one of his father's valuable bullocks using the wood of the Asherah pole for firewood. Now the Asherah pole was dedicated to the goddess Asherah whose worship involved all kinds of vile and immoral practice. Gideon obeyed God, but at night, when the community and neighborhood was asleep. And we see again that Gideon still has this question ringing in his mind, will God take care of me? I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. I'll do what he asks, but I'll do it at night. I'll do it when no one can see me. I'll do it in the darkness. And so Gideon obeys God, albeit with great fear in his heart. And in the morning at verse 28, when the men of the town got up, they of course noticed that all that had happened. And they began to ask. They asked the question, who's responsible for demolishing the altar? Who cut down the Asherah pole? And who made a sacrifice of the bullock? And investigations reveal that Gideon is the culprit. And as you read there, a lynch mob 
is ready to have him. But up steps Joash, the father of Gideon. Now don't be mistaken, Joash had every reason to be angry with Gideon. Gideon had smashed his father's altar to Baal, had replaced it with an altar to Jehovah, had taken, without asking, one of his father's prized bulls, and had used the coveted Asherah pole as firewood. He had every reason to be hopping mad with his son. But notice that he wasn't. Not that he didn't want to be, but that he wasn't. Because God was so working in Joash's heart that not only did he defend Gideon, he actually even insulted Baal. Verse 31. What kind of a God is Baal if he can't even defend himself, he asks. A question, by the way, which Elijah was to repeat, if you remember, in his confrontation with Baal some years later. Question three, will God take care of Gideon? Of course he will. And Gideon learned a very valuable lesson that day, a lesson that if he obeyed the Lord, even with fear in his heart, then the Lord would protect Gideon and bring glory to God's name at the same time. He needed to remember that lesson as he began recruiting his army to fight the Midianite invaders. And that brings us to the fourth question. Does God keep his promises? At verse 33, the Midianites and all their allies prepare for their annual invasion into Gideon's community by setting up a camp in the valley of Jezreel. And as we'll see next Sunday evening, they are a mighty force. A total of about 135,000 men. And so as Gideon sees them assembling, what does he do? Well, it's not so much a question about what do we find Gideon doing. It's more about the question, what does God do? And in verse 34, we read very significant words. We read these words. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Does God keep his promises? Of course he does. And Gideon's family history should have reminded him of that very fact. If you look back at chapter 3 and verse 10, you'll read that it says there that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel. The same problem, the same answer, the same God. The Spirit of the Lord, that little phrase, is a key phrase. And it's key to the challenges faced by God's people here in the book of Judges. We'll come across the same phrase again as we reach chapters 11, 13, 14, and 15. As Gideon faced the challenge of doing God's will, he found what you and I still find to this very day, that it's not by might, it's not by by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That great verse in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. And as the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, he blew a trumpet at verse 34. And he began to rally his troops, and from different surrounding communities, out they came to greet him. But look again at verse 36. If you will save Israel by my hand. If you will save Israel by my hand. And believe it or not, here again we see Gideon questioning God. This time he asks, will you keep your promise? 
And he even goes to the point of again asking for confirmation that God would do what he said and that he actually would do what he said he would do. And in the verses that follow, we have that well-known story of getting laying out fleeces before God. You'll find it there in the closing verses of chapter 6. You'll remember where he, he, he says, I'll place, I'll place a fleece, a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only in the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung, it out, wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. And in fact Gideon asked for two more signs. In total here we see three signs that Gideon asked for to try and convince this wimp, this card, that God could actually be serious in asking him to take on the might of the Midianites. The putting out of the fleece is a very familiar one in some Christian thinking. But for me, and feel free to challenge or disagree with me on this, but for me, the putting out of a fleece is not a biblical method for determining God's will. It is for me a method which people like Gideon, who lack faith to trust God, use to ascertain if he will do what he says he will do. And in verses 36 and 37, Gideon twice reminds God of what God had said. And twice Gideon asked God to reaffirm his promises with a miracle. The fact that God agrees to listen and act on Gideon's request only goes to prove again what a gracious God he actually is. Who are we to tell God what to do? And especially when he has already given us all of the assurances of his word. Putting out the fleece is not only the evidence of our unbelief, It is also an evidence of our pride. Does God have to do what I tell him to do before I'll do what he tells me to do? Let me say that again. Does God have to do what I tell him to do before I'll do what he tells me to do? There was nothing for Gideon to do but confront the enemy and to trust God for victory. But did he do it? That's for next week. Why not come back and see if Gideon does actually get his Q's and his P's sorted out? And in the meantime, this week, watch your questions and watch God's promises.